Welcome back. I'm visiting here today with Tom Chatham. Uh, Tom, welcome to today's show. You're welcome. Glad so, to be here. So, Tom, you're you're an icon in the uh, in the in the gem industry. A lot of people uh, wear your products. They may not know where it came from, though. So, uh, can you give the listeners background of uh, you know how you got where you are today and in in the business model that you run? Well, the real icon was my father, Carol Chatham, who was the first man to be successful in growing emerald on a commercial basis. We weren't the first. A lot of people give us that credit, but there were people in the mid-1800s growing emerald, but it was just laboratory curiosities. Carol Chatham was a, a genius in his own right. He had grown emerald in his own laboratory in San Francisco before he went to college. And then after Caltech in Pasadena started a business, the Second World War took a little time out of that, but created laboratories in San Francisco where he grew emerald. Uh, I joined him in 1965 when I was about 21, and he was very good at chemistry. And my majors in college were chemistry and math, but it was really a waste of time. Uh, he was so good. The uh, handbook of chemistry is about six inches thick, and he memorized it. I mean, I could already find things in it, much less memorize it. I got to work with him for many years before his death in 1983. He died when he was 68 years old, unfortunately, from the kind of work he did. Uh, we are very careful with the chemicals we deal with, but Carol Chatham came from the old school of chemistry in the, the 20s and 30s. You tasted things, you smelled things. You know, if, if you could stand the smell, you put up with it. Well, some of these things we now know are, are very dangerous. Uh, but I came to him in 65 and we began work on Ruby. He had already accomplished Emerald and was written up in many periodicals and newspapers and front pages and uh, even in Ripley's, believe it or not, this young kid growing emeralds in San Francisco. Uh, and we developed processes for all of the important gemstones. First, it was emerald, then ruby, then blue sapphire. Blue sapphire was extremely difficult, and we couldn't figure out how to grow it. And it's a little backup. Sapphire and ruby are all the same, corundum. And little coloring agents, dopants, we call them, make the color in the stone. So ruby has chromium, uh, blue sapphire has iron and titanium, and it causes certain things in the crystal to go bad. I mean, the crystals would come out black, or they would come out colorless. So we spent years and years on that. Uh, after that, because we felt so inept at growing blue sapphire, we said, let's go sideways and look at other members of the corundum family to see if either we're stupid or there's something here that we don't understand. And sure enough, there were other things involved with growing blue sapphire that were not involved in growing orange sapphire or pink sapphire or white sapphire. So it, it let us know that there was something going on here. And we did finally figure it out. And we went on from there to grow alexandrite, uh, opals. Some of that involved taking over other companies that were competitors at the time. Uh, the, the holy grail of crystal growth has been diamond. 
And that's what Carol Chatham was actually trying to do uh, in his youth was grow diamond. But it requires such a uh, dangerous environment, high pressure, high temperature, that after almost blowing up his father's house in San Francisco, came very close to it. Uh, his father was in the lumber business, knew nothing about this youngest of five kids, what he was doing in the cellar garage. How, how old was he? <laughs> Just curious. I have pictures of his laboratory he built when he was 12. Oh, my goodness. And he grew up in an era that the corner drugstore was called a chemist. And if you know what to ask for, they'd sell it to you. So growing up with my father, and we had a laboratory in our garage that he built, taught us how to make gunpowder, how to make rockets, how to make bombs. Uh, luckily, nobody lost a finger. Uh, but he also taught us how to be careful with chemistry, and this is dangerous, and just don't try and mix a big bowl of gunpowder together because just rubbing it together can set it off. You know, So little things like that. But it was great growing up and in, in, in learning that. As a matter of fact, Fourth of July, where we had a lot of different firework displays around the Bay Area, what kind of got to my brother and I was my father's explanation of why all the colors were what they were. I mean, oh, yeah, that's iron and that's potassium and that's, you know, you mix those two together and you get those colors. You know, we at 12 years old, we could care less, you know, just big booms. So, so I, I came into the laboratories in 65. And now learned. you're at the age of 21, you'd grown up around the environment of your, your dad, the chemist. So clearly, do you, you, had you gone through school at the time or what, what, what was your feeling? It's like, you know, you're more tutored than you were schooled in this. I didn't really appreciate what my father had accomplished because I was around it so much. I mean, there are pictures on our website of my father and mother and my brother and I sitting on the living room floor playing with a bottle of emeralds and I'm like three years old. And so it was always something like that. It was always somebody wanting to interview my father and he always believed in sharing everything with the family. So we were all together and we would watch these interviews and live TV programs, what have you. So I just thought it was sort of normal. The only thing that wasn't normal was if someone asked me in middle school, what does your father do for a living? I couldn't say he grows emeralds. That it, 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 it didn't work. Now, they did a TV program way back when on, on your dad. You asked for it? Or you what, asked for it. it, it what yep. year was this? It was Jack Smith. Uh, it was black and white. I'm going to say 1957, 58. They, and made, they a little bit easier. made it a little bit easier to explain this. They go watch TV and <laughs> see what my dad does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they came in and into the laboratories, and he tried to explain verbally what he was doing. He wouldn't show them what he was doing. Our laboratories are off uh, limits to anybody to walk through. Um, but it was it was an interesting film shoot because they they wanted to know how can you separate if it's identical, if it's the same as a natural emerald, how can anybody separate it? And the basic gemological differences in the gemstone can be studied to such an extent that you can identify what mine a particular emerald came from. 
what country it came from. Colombia produces certain inclusions of a certain type. Uh, the Muzo mine in Colombia has its own distinct inclusions. And the same holds true for Africa and India and what have you. So if you study enough emeralds, you can become an expert at separation. And we share all of our products with the, all of the major gemological institutes around the world. They study them, they learn where to, what to look for in the stone, and then they make their determination. But my father had a different way of separating the stones. Uh, he wasn't a gemologist. He was way above being a gemologist. He was a chemist. But the difference between gemology and chemistry is that chemistry, you often get into destructive identifications. You have to take the thing apart to know what it's made out of. Well, gemology, that's a big no-no. You don't want somebody destroying, you know, the corner of your $5,000 emerald. But Carol Chatham had a foolproof method that he showed on this TV program. You asked for it. And they did a setup that the host wasn't quite sure what was gonna happen, but my father said, well, you get me a natural emerald of about a carat size, and I'll use one of my emeralds, and I'll demonstrate on live TV how you separate the natural from the Chatham. And so Jack Smith, uh, the host, said, okay, you're on your own. You know, you're the chemist. And so my father took these stones, wrapped a little piece of wire around each one, put it in the torch, and as they turned red, and the host is getting on camera, off camera, looking at this emerald heating up, not knowing what's gonna happen, and all of a sudden, the natural emerald blows up, chatters, and it was priceless to see Jack Smith's face, to see the emerald that he paid for explode, and my father very, calmly and said, this is the way you can absolutely separate the two different products. The heat went up, the water content, and the natural emerald will make it explode. And the Chatham will be fine because we don't use any water in our process. Tom, I need to take a quick break. I'm visiting here today with Tom Chatham. He's the CEO of Chatham, a, a lab created gems, and uh, we'll be right back after these messages. Take your wealth with you. Spend time with your family. Welcome back. I'm visiting here today with Tom Chatham. He's the CEO of uh, Chatham at Lab Created Gemstones and Diamonds. And your, your dad started this over 80 years ago. And yes. then you joined in 1965. And Boy, how the industry has changed! But I want to—I want to roll into lab-created gems versus natural, naturally mined ones. Why would someone want to purchase uh, one versus the other? And and is the price point roughly the same? Because these are this is not something where you put five thousand a day out. This is this is a real process to make a a, a gemstone. Right. Uh- as I explained earlier, some of these crystals take up to a year to grow, so it's not a mass production type of process, and time is money. Uh, 
But for a given quality of natural emerald uh, and versus Chatham, there's going to be a substantial difference in price. Where we meet is where the quality of the natural becomes so poor that it is perhaps not safe to wear. It has too many inclusions. Emerald is fragile. It can break easily when somebody hits a ring, what have you. So our stone tends to be tougher. And for the same price, we can give a better quality of stone Mm -hmm. and calibrated and properly cut. And that's what we're trying to make our advantages in those areas that are hard to find in the natural gemstone. So you could come to us and say, I want a seven by five millimeter pear shape. And we would have it. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't find that in the natural gemstone. So we, we have made it easier to make jewelry with our stones. And we have to constantly stress the fact that it is identical to the natural gemstone. So let's differentiate. So just for the listeners out there, you know, maybe when we talk about lab crater, we think about Cubic zirconium or something. I mean, we're 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 way off that. Yeah, where it's it's a year to make these uh, differentiating a natural versus a gem created is not always easy, is it? No, uh, not easy at all. I mean, the, the experts have come to us after we've developed a product and get samples, buy samples, and we we usually donate samples uh, for them to study and look for characteristics that will reflect the environment that stone grew in, whether it grew in the ground or grew in our laboratory. There's usually something in there consistently that can become a standard uh, of that particular identification. And so that holds true with all of our products. They know that it's a Chatham if they find this particular included crystal inside the stone. It doesn't have to be there, but if it is there, you can identify where it came from. Know it's Chatham or it's Colombian or African. But the host material, the emerald, is identical. But it has to be properly disclosed. I mean, that's that's a a, a controversial area right now, has been for many years. Whenever we come out with a new gemstone, uh, some people in the world run around like, chicken with his head cut off. The world is going to come to an end in the emerald business, and it didn't. The world is going to come to an end in the ruby business, and it didn't. So the the, the, the discretionary mind of the consumer, so they're like if the natural versus the lab-created processors are roughly the same, why would there be a price difference? It's a silly question, but it at the same time, uh, when the market is 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 bearing the price, you, if I understand this correctly, what you're able to do is you're able to give a deliverable for mass production, five thousand units or something, where a mine diamond is not going to be the same. It's difficult. Okay. I mean, I've had a chore. We, we sometimes supply natural gemstones to people on a special order basis, and I had somebody who requested. Uh, 12 pieces of blue sapphire in carrot size rounds. So they would all be matched and they all had to be approximately the same size. So I went to my friends in the natural stone industry and I said, this is what I'm after. They said, oh, you're, you're crazy. You can't do that. You're going to be all over the world trying to collect this. 
And I said, why is it so hard to have 12 stones the same? That, you know, don't you, I mean, there's, there's no shortage of blue sapphire production. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a rare stone, but it, it, there's still millions of stones. Mm-hmm. And they said, that's just the way it is. And I said, you know what? That's the difference between us. Because I'll cut 12 blue sapphires that are identical, close to identical, if I get an order. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between your industry and my industry. Because I'll try and satisfy the needs, the demands of the industry versus satisfying the pocketbooks of the miners. Yeah, which is interesting. It says so. Sometimes in this industry, people will go into the large shopping malls and see a jewelry store here and there, and not really give a a thought about, you know, how these stores across the United States are supplied. And the reality is, you're giving a very good quality gem, but you're able because you're able to produce in the mass quantities. These stores can exist. Am I say that right? Well, not quite right. Okay. It's not that we can. I mean, that's certainly true. It's that we will. Yeah. Okay. We have that drive to be more competitive. What can we do the natural doesn't want to do? They can do it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they will lose a lot of yield. And I've I've given talks to natural stone people and said, this is mm-hmm. what, you know, this is why we're successful and you're not. Mm-hmm. And well, we can't do that. You know, it's easier for you because you make the stone. I said, wait a minute, you're saying I'm cheaper than you are? So we, of course, yeah, you're cheaper. I said, wait a minute, where do your natural stones come from? You pick them up off the ground for nothing. Oh no, we've got all sorts of costs. (laughs) Well, I realize you do, but you are picking them up off the ground for free. I am not. I'll show you some chemical bills that'll give you a heartache, heart attack. Tom, I need to take a quick break. I'm visiting here today with Tom Chatham of Chatham Created Gems and Diamonds, and we'll be right back after these messages. I love fishing, you know, with my family. I think it would be easier to use a net. It was so much fun. The times when we are together, it makes it all all the more worth it. Having Dad teach them how to, like, cast a fly rod and... As long as we're doing stuff together, we're having fun. Some people see a father and a son fishing together, while others see a succession plan. Welcome back. I'm visiting here today with Tom Chatham of Chatham Created Gems and Diamonds. And, and, and Tom, fascinating story how your father uh, started the, these processes some 80 years ago and developed and perfected the, 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 um, the, the creation of gems and diamonds uh, following a natural process. And this is not done overnight. Um, you know, I understand it must have been tough for the, the, the purists to say, well, Natural versus, you know, a created stone. But uh, what, what challenges have you faced over the years with the purists versus what you're doing there? Yes, there are a, a lot of purists in the gem industry. Uh, they they love what they do. They have a passion for the natural gemstone. They think it's a miracle of nature, which it is from their point of view, but from our point of view, it's just chemistry. Uh, it's a difficult form of chemistry, but it's a part of chemistry that we really enjoy today more than anyone can imagine. The cell phones, you know, the computerization, 
is all based on growing a crystal. That's what's in the center of that thing. But when it comes to adornment and gemstones and jewelry, people get a little carried away and, and they got carried away. And probably it was based on what happened when Mickey Moto came out with the Culture Pearl in, in 1910 and it competed with the Natural Pearl that used to be extremely valuable. I mean, the Cartier building was traded for a strand of cultured pearls back in, I don't know, in the 50s. So that fear was there. And when Carol Chatham introduced his stone, his emerald, uh, that same fear was there with the big retailers on Fifth Avenue in New York. And somebody had placed friends in, in high places, uh, Washington, D.C., Federal Trade Commission, and Carol Chatham called his stone Chatham Cultured Emerald. He felt that that was the most accurate descriptive phrase to use. He would not use the word synthetic because it was so misused even back uh, in the 40s and 50s to mean anything that was ersatz or, you know, fake. So he refused to use the word synthetic. And these people in high places got the FTC to issue us a cease and desist order. And the way that works is you sign off on the cease and desist. There wasn't any fines or punishment involved, and you must call your stone synthetic. And my father refused. So when you refuse, you get your day in court. That day in court took three years in Washington, D.C. <laughs> that wasn't cheap. That <laughs> was you know, not cheap. It was 1959 through 62. And the opposition, I think, knew that Carol Chatham would not divulge how he made the stone. How could you culture the stone? You have, and the, the judge even says, you know, I'm a, I'm a chemist. I understand chemistry. For the good of society, we want you to explain your process. Well, that was a lot of baloney, good of society. I mean, who needs an emerald? My father refused. And the judge said to my father, if you refuse to tell us how you're growing these stones, it's contempt of court. One year in jail and $5,000 a day. And my father says, you might as well put me in jail now because I will not divulge my secret process, my whole life's work for your satisfaction. And the judge thought for a few minutes, just, okay, everybody in chambers, you know, he knew he made a mistake. There's no way... He could legally get away with us either, forcing my father yeah, in contempt of court. For your dad it. knew that. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, we had good legal advice. Yeah, uh, yeah. So in chambers, the judge said, listen, you know, we got to get over this somehow. We're at this point where you can't, you refuse to divulge. I understand that. Let's find some other word that will satisfy everybody. And my father says, well, we've, we've had a lot of, people working on it. We can't figure out other words that would be a good descriptive phrase, meaningful and, and honest. And the judge suggested created because you're creating emerald. My father says, yeah. And well, why don't you call it Chatham created emerald? Great. We hadn't even thought of that. And Signed three, off on it? Three years to get that word. No, it didn't take three years to get that. We okay. got to that point yeah. in six months. Okay. Signed off on it, changed all the advertising, changed the corporate name, 
changed everyone's business card, all the advertising we were doing, changed to Chatham Created Emerald. Got another cease and desist order. Prove that you're creating Emerald or, you know, cease and desist. <laughs> this was a different fight. Okay. Cre proving that we created Emerald was easy. Proving that we cultured an Emerald was difficult. And it still took two and a half years to get that through with experts coming in from the GIA. What does hmm. Chatham make? What is he creating? Well, you know, they would sometimes mumble, you know, well, Emerald, speak up, speak up. I, you know. I just curious. What is he are, making? Are, are, are you patented? Is no, pa no patent. Okay, so no patents. You can't. My father had good advice when he, he went to a patent attorney when he yeah. first grew Emerald. And he says, Why shouldn't I patent this process? And he said, well, what are you making? Let me see it. And he says, if, and they were smart enough to see that if you can't tell how you make it by looking at the finished product, what do you want to patent it for? Patents are readable. The people in, a, in opposition were even more upset with created. They said he's now put himself on a level with God, creating an emerald. Uh, luckily, we didn't have to, you know, consider that aspect in, in the court. We're talking about laws. And the, uh, I don't know if you call it prosecution, but the, the government called in all of the top gem experts in New York, uh, the head of GIA, that Sotheby's and other places, you know, what is Chatham making? And they kept having to answer, well, he's making an emerald. And the judge, even at one point, says, these are all government witnesses. They sound more like Chatham witnesses. Uh, and finally, he came to the conclusion. He says, Chatham is creating emerald, and I'm going to allow that word. It isn't disallowing the word synthetic, which we also tried to prove was so misleading that it wouldn't be fair to the public. Because the FTC works for both ways. I mean, they want to protect the public's right in buying any product, but they want the public to understand that, that this is not a fake and phony stone, and that's what synthetic conveys to them. And, and it, just for clarifying, as the, the, the listeners are, are, you know, we're, we're going through this, you know, using a cubic zirconium as a, Replacement for diamond. We we're this is apples and oranges. When we're talking about a Chatham created gem and diamond, this is not anywhere close to the comparison of a cubic zirconium to a diamond. Is that not, okay? Not at all. Uh, the only thing Chatham will produce is identical to the naturally occurring gemstone. Cubic zirconia is an imitation. Okay. Yeah. Of diamond. So okay. is moissanite. It's a different compound. Mm -hmm. Our emerald, ruby, diamonds, sapphires, what have you, are identical in chemical structure, crystalline structure, hardness. Everything that a material is measured by is identical in our product. Okay. Thank you. So, so you finally were able to get through all this, the, the second round of lawsuits. How, how did that thing finally end? It finally ended in it, 1962 with the judge issuing a... Uh, decision in our favor, and it became a precedent in the industry. Okay. It's used now worldwide, uh, and my opposition actually 
opposition meaning the natural gemstone people, said, well, why don't you protect that and make it just for you and go after the other people using it? Because we had competitors in the 50s and 60s. Union Carbide had an emerald process and a few other people did. That uh, We said, no, we don't think they should be called synthetic either. If they were making a product that's like ours, they should have the same rights that we do. And so we're not going to try and hold on to this precedent. We want it to stand and as it should, as it does today. So when we're looking at the, um, the, the gems that you do grow and, and diamonds, what, what is the hardest one to grow, or the hardest gemstone to grow? Oh, that's a difficult question. Uh, all of them require different environments. Crystal growth is, is very similar in all different materials, but they all require different environments under which they will crystallize. So emerald is a combination of four different elements that makes it more complicated, so we have to slow things way down, and that's why it takes 11 months to grow a crystal. Diamond, on the other hand, is only carbon. And that being one element on the periodic chart, if you get the right conditions, you can quickly grow diamond. And we grow diamond in about two weeks time, up to 10, 15 carats size of rough. And it's, it, it's the environment though that is extreme. We're talking 1300 degrees centigrade under 700,000 pounds per square inch. And to accomplish that, the steel is three feet, excuse me, three stories high to maintain this hydraulic pressure that is trying to melt itself because of the temperature, push itself apart. Computers are controlling everything. And it's a very complicated environment to recreate. That is and if amazing. we don't, we get graphite. Mm-hmm. We don't get diamond. So for the listeners, every every show that we do, we we videotape it, put it back to our website at grlco.com, and it, it and Tom has shared that he'd be willing to share a picture here of of one of these machines three stories high, and uh, in in you said seven hundred thousand pounds, pounds per square inch. per square inch. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's a so, lot of pushing. Yeah, that's a lot of pushing, and uh, and 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 it it speaks to. There's not a lot of people that are doing what you do. No, there's there's more than in any other gemstone, uh, because it's not a new process. General mm-hmm. Electric made diamond in 1954, and my travels and experiments in Russia uh, showed me that they were making diamond even before we were. Uh, they had no idea how much diamond they actually had in Russia. So for the war effort and whatever, diamond is a very important commodity in the machine world mm-hmm. and machining. Uh, exotic metals like beryllium cannot be cut with anything else but diamond. So Now, now Tom, you've uh, after 80 years, uh, not only are you creating the gems and diamonds, but you also cut some stones? Oh, yes, we cut a lot of stones. Uh, my father started the company as a mine would, selling the rough to cutters. Uh, I came in and saw the benefits of cutting the stone and marketing the product ourselves to the wholesale retail store. And now we make jewelry 
but cutting, we have about 300 people in China that are cutting stones. Uh, we used to cut everything in the United States, and unfortunately, uh, that particular field uh, became unpopular in the 50s, and it was too expensive. So we've literally chased the dollar around the world, uh, finding cutters with the talent and at the price we can afford. Now, any of the listeners curious in the question, can I can I get a Chatham Stone off the internet, or how, how does a person find find you, or do they go to the retail? Well, you can find us on the internet at chatham.com, and you will see our products. You can read about our story, my father's work, my work, uh, what we have for sale. You can find retailers by punching in a, a zip code. Uh, some kind, sometimes, on occasion, we will sell directly if there are no retailers, but we always involve retailers anyway, and they get a nice surprise check from us. I've been visiting here today with Tom Chatham. He's the CEO of Chatham Created Gems and Diamonds. Tom, we're out of time today, but it's been a pleasure having you on today's show. Thank you. My pleasure.